Are you amazed when people drive their vehicles for over 250,000 miles? How often should you change your engine oil? What techniques can improve your mileage? Would an expensive fuel injection cleaning improve your engine performance? This is Car Guy with Brett Beachler at Beachler's Vehicle Care and Repair. Find out how to substantially reduce your cost per mile and extend the longevity of your vehicles. Welcome to Car Guy with Brett Beachler on PeoriaLife.com. Hey, good morning, Central Illinois. This is the Car Guy with Brett Beachler. Good morning, Greg. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm Greg McCoy, and I welcome everybody to back to our show. And uh, we want to start out today by talking about cold weather because we're experiencing some cold weather in Central Illinois right now. So, Brett, what are a couple tips with respect to caring for your car in cold weather? So, a couple of tips. Uh, one of the misnomers out there is that people like to go out and start their car and let it run for 15, 20, 25 minutes. Um, that actually does not heat the car up as quickly as we like. Now, our bodies like it because we get inside of a warm car, but cars are designed to have the engines come up to temperature while driving and not necessarily at idle. It's not, it's not that it hurts them significantly, but it's not great for them long term. Uh, I know a lot of folks have uh, remote start on their vehicle, love them in this time of the year when it gets down to you know, 0, 10, 20 degrees, um, but the ideal way to heat up an engine is to literally get in it, start it, drive it, and go to your destination. In other words, warm it up under load. Warm it up under load. It's much like our bodies. Um, they like to be warmed up and then stretched after we warm up. They don't like to stretch when they're cold. Um, our, our bodies also come up at temperature much more quickly when we exercise as opposed to sitting there in a chair, which is essentially what the car is doing. It's sitting there. Now, it does come up to temperature, and you do use a little more fuel and if that's worth it to you, then by all means, do it. So, well, what about block heaters? Uh, block heaters uh, tremendously used up north, up in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Canada. Um, pretty essential in diesel engines to have block heaters up north. They're not so much necessary around here. Um, is it a bad thing? Absolutely not. It brings the temperature of the oil up, uh, brings the temperature of the coolant up, and it obviously brings the temperature of you up when you get inside the car much more quickly. So it doesn't hurt a thing. It's just a little ex additional expense having the block heater in the car. So, But not necessarily as common around here as it is up north. Does it make a difference if you're storing your car inside versus outside? Uh, a slight difference. Um, I know a lot of folks have connected garages to their homes, so essentially they're partially heated. Um, so it will help the car in terms of its jump on getting the engine block warm. Um, some folks have garages that are disconnected from the home, so essentially the ambient temperature is the same outside as it is inside, so not a huge difference, but I like to keep the elements off of our vehicles, and we keep our garage cleared out and keep the cars in there, and um, overall cars like to be kept in garages. It keeps the UV rays off of them, which helps extend the life, so um, a lot of elements off of them. You don't have to clean snow off the windows, which most folks don't enjoy doing that, snow and ice, so... Uh, but garages are definitely an advantage. Another thing about cold weather in cars is battery life. Mm -hmm. If you have a car that's sitting outside for a period of time, cold weather is hard on batteries, right? It, it is hard on batteries as long as they're not dis as long as they're not discharging. They're okay. What hurts a battery is when they sit for a long period of time and they naturally discharge. Uh, batteries are not designed to discharge 
recharge, discharge, recharge. It is harder on them to do the discharging process. So we have some folks that come into our business that literally let their cars sit for months at a time. So what we encourage them to do is either A, disconnect the battery, or B, put them on a battery tender. So it's like a trickle charger, and it preserves the battery for that period of time while not hurting anything else. So Now, why would you disconnect the battery? Uh, because there's some amperage draw on a battery, um, even with it not starting, with it connected to the electrical system of cars, and even now more so than ever, uh, there are a lot of electronics that need to maintain battery charge, you know, radio radio channels, things of that nature. So there is a small amperage draw on batteries, even with the car not running. Really? That's interesting. I don't think a lot of people do that. Yes, that. That, is, that is absolutely correct. I actually have a customer that goes down to Phoenix every year and... Um, I don't make this a habit, but I, he's a friend of mine, but I go over and disconnect his batteries for him uh, at the end of fall, early early uh, winter, and then he calls me back from Phoenix and says, hey, I'm coming home in April. I'll be there in two weeks. I just go reconnect them back up. So, um, Otherwise, he'd have two, de- two dead batteries after four or five months of sitting. Wow. So, For a, a battery that's in good shape, how long would it take for that battery to be in a danger zone if you didn't disconnect it? It's sitting there in cold weather a week, a month? Uh, typically what we see at least two weeks, usually around a month, you'll see a car not starting after sitting for that period of time. Hmm. So, um, so yeah, we advise to either disconnect or have a trickle charger on it or have a jump pack in your trunk to help jump start it. But most people don't like to do that. All right, good. Well, another interesting topic to talk about in the winter time is tires. Let's talk about tires in the winter. Right. Um, we have a self-service tire inflator outside, and I, I feel sorry for a lot of people because tires lose more, lose air more aggressively in the winter. Um, so there's a there's a molecule reason behind that. Molecules you know get smaller, but um, most importantly is keep the air in the tires. Um, typically, tires should not lose more than one pound a month. Um, some tires you see not lose any air. I'll put air in my tires every time I get tires. I clean the beads up. Um, so I typically won't lose but one or two pounds over four or five months. Um, but some people's tires are more aggressive. We'll see them lose a couple, three pounds. If you're losing four or five pounds a month, you've got some type of small leak in the tire. But the most important part about tires keeping air in them is you help preserve the tire for the life of those tires because tires with them running low on air actually wear the tires out quicker than if they are inflated properly. So that's why we encourage folks um, – on tires, just to keep them inflated um, if they want to maximize their use on the tire and not have to spend money on tires more often. So, Well, a lot of cars, speaking of tire inflation, mm-hmm. especially in the winter, a lot of cars have these indicators now that show up on your dashboard Correct. if they go below a certain. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how they do that. <laughs> Seems like that'd be, I have visions of a guy running alongside the tire as you're going down the road trying to put the tire gauge on mm-hmm. the tire. Uh, I don't know how they do that. But oh. anyway, it measured it somehow. Is, are those accurate? Absolutely accurate. The technology behind them is they put a chip um, in the valve stem. So I'll tell you the pros and the cons of this. So they put a chip inside the valve stem that sends a signal to what they call the PCM, I believe is what it is. It's basically the brain of the car. And the brain of the car tells you when a tire is at least two pounds or more, if not low. So those are great, but the problem is it sets off these signals inside your head and says, oh, gosh, my tire is flat. And generally speaking, they're not flat. They're low on air, one to two to three pounds. Um, the drawback is when those tire pressure monitors fail, it's typically 80 to to $100 to replace that valve stem. Now, before 
the government mandated these valve stems into our vehicles, it was a dollar thirty to replace that valve stem if it went bad. So it, it's good and bad. It just adds expense to the end user, the consumer. So it's a government mandate. I didn't it's a government that. mandate um, that we have to have it in there because a they want fuel savings. They want people to be more cognizant of the air pressure in their tires. So um, I'm trying to keep from getting cynical toward our politicians, but um, it's good in that manner. People tend to pay attention better to their tires, but the the end result is I've seen a lot of customers where tire pressure monitors go faulty and they're spending 80 to a hundred dollars to replace this tire pressure monitor and they're not happy doing it. But our hands are tied. Um, they ha- do have the option to put a regular valve stem in there for a dollar thirty plus the labor to do it. Uh, the catches are going to be staring at a light on their dashboard twenty four seven every time they start their car. So they're not going to legitimately know if their tire is low or not. So that's one of the drawbacks. So you know we don't necessarily uh, not embrace the technology, but it's there to stay. It's not going away. Can you put um, a piece of black tape over the indicator? You can put a piece of black tape. I've seen customers do that on check engine lights and tire pressure monitors. But um, the benefit of it is you know, in fact, you have a tire that's low and you need to address the situation. So not everybody addresses the situation all the time, though. <laughs> all right. Another issue about with respect to driving in the wintertime and tires is traction. So what about snow tires? What about uh, chains right. and so forth? So snow tires around here are not necessarily, I call it cost-beneficial advantageous to you because typically what you're doing is you're changing, you're spending money to change tires in the snow tires for about one to two months around here. Um, you know, I, we, we go visit a place called Ironwood, Michigan. They typically have snow for about four to five months. Um, a lot of people change their tires in the snow tires up there. But 90% of the aspect on getting through snow is good tread. So I always tell folks, you know, when you get new tires, you know, I, I put new tires in my car last week and um, my daughter and I were out driving and I was having fun because there's a lot of traction with new tires. And um, if I would have had the tires I had on previously, three weeks previous, I wouldn't have driven like that. Um, but new t- the, the aspect of getting through snow, the, the huge aspect is having tread on your tires. That's the, the main aspect. Now, chains, not necessary around here. They're, they're actually, I don't believe they're even allowed in Peoria because it's hard on pavements. But you go out to places like Colorado up in the mountains, it's mandatory. You put chains on if they have a snowstorm. Snow tires, not necessary around here. Chains, not necessary. Um, ideally, you want to deflate your tires a little bit if you get into heavy snow, but most folks don't do that. It's not absolutely necessary. Then you're staring at the uh, indicator on the uh, Yeah, dashboard. and then you're staring at the indicator on the dashboard. You know, but the ultimate deal is on tires. Um, what's interesting is I, I go to snow a lot, go to snow a lot, and I enjoy it. But a lot of people who are versed in snow have really skinny tires like the olden days because it's a it's a pounds per square inch distribution throughout the tires. The folks with the big, wide, beefy tires literally float on snow when they're driving, and they really have a difficult time. I know guys with big Dodge trucks that have you know, super wide 20, 22-inch tires, they don't like going out in the snow because they just literally float because they're distributing that weight in a much bigger surface area of the tire, so it allows it to float better. Now, they handle better in the in the drive pavement, but in the snow, they don't do very well. But So really skinny tires are the ideal situation on, on snow, but um, that's that's expensive to mix up in this part of the country to put skinny tires on cars to get around. So the biggest angle of approach, we always say, is get tread depth on the tires. And that'll get you traction. 
So you said you bought new tires and you went with your daughter and you drove differently yeah. and you care to discuss how you drove? No, we just, I, I didn't have any apprehension in terms of what I could do and where I could go. And, um, um, I just had, simply had the confidence to go through the snow and, and turn and brake and accelerate like I wanted to. Um, but I, I surely wouldn't have had that confidence three weeks prior if we'd had that snowstorm with the, with the, the old tires I had on there. So attraction is the big, biggest part, having tread depth for attraction. All right. Well, let's stay on tires for a minute. Let's talk about repair of tires. And what do you do when you're going down the road and all of a sudden you have a flat tire or your tire pressure is really, really low? Do you have any thoughts on that? So the biggest thing is maintain control of your vehicle, pull off to the side in a, in a very uh, cautious, safe manner. Um, I've changed a tire on the side of the interstate before for a family member of mine. We were traveling in, in kind of a caravan together. And quite honestly, uh, I had my you know my eyes over my shoulders at all times looking for cars. Um, it's not a fun situation if you can get off to the side of the road as much as you, as you possibly can. Um, ideally, you like to get off on a ramp on the interstate. Um, we also carry, it's ideal to carry a little mat you can put your knees on. Gloves, if you, if possible, I went out and helped a friend change a spare the other night and came out with gloves, a four-way wrench, and, and a thing to put my knees on because it was pouring down rain. So um, that is a huge aspect of it, but the biggest thing is you've got to look out for your safety when you're changing a spare tire, especially if you're changing it on the driver's side of the car. I can't stress that enough. Um, and I'm not a fearful person, but when it comes to you and a car, you're going to lose every time if somebody decides to text and veer off to the side of the road while you're changing a spare tire. Just be very aware and be very careful about that. So um, ideally is to call a tow, but sometimes people, many times people don't want to rely on somebody else waiting an hour plus to wait for a tow to get there. Um, but the biggest thing I tell folks is practice changing your spare because I can't tell you how many times people have come into our business and they've said to us, you know, I don't even know how to change a spare in my car. And most people don't do that. And it's, I'm not picking on people at all. It's, it's a good practice to get into. I know my daughter is going to know how to change a spare because I don't want her to have to rely on anybody else. Uh, so just educate yourself on changing the spare tire and where all the tools are, where the spare is located. You know, a lot of vehicles, we see a lot of, um, minivans that put the spare tire underneath the belly of the vehicle in the center of the car. And people are quite, quite honestly, there's perplexed when they see where the location of the tire is and how do I get this out? And there's a crank inside the vehicle to, you know, drop the tire down. You got to get underneath the car, drag it out. You're going to get dirty. There's no doubt about it. So just be versed in terms of what it takes to change your spare tire and don't be at the mercy of somebody else uh, changing your tire for you. So, Okay, so you're driving down the road, your tire goes flat, and it's two miles to the next exit. Can I make it? Um, what I would do is I would get out and inspect the tire, and if you believe the tire is shredded and you're not going to salvage the tire anyways, I would limp along the side of the road and get to the exit ramp, honestly, and then change it. I am so apprehensive about changing tires on a highway or an interstate about that. Uh, I would I would do that in a heartbeat. It's hundred or hundred and fifty dollars for a new tire is not worth your life. Period. Um, I've just seen and read about too many incidents where people have been struck and they're done. So I, I would, if you could, I would get it to the to the exit ramp. And if as long as you limp along and don't drive at an accelerated pace, you, you're very likely not to hurt or damage the rim, 
which is the much more expensive aspect of it. Usually alloy rims are 250 to $450, so you don't necessarily want to damage the alloy rim. But then again, if it's you or an alloy rim, I'd, I'd pick the alloy rim every time. So, well, What about these little portable air compressors that you can buy mm-hmm. at Walmart, Kmart, whatever, that you plug into your cigarette lighter? Mm-hmm. And uh, Are those a good idea? Uh, definitely a viable <laughs> option. Um, they will work, obviously, on a temporary basis. If you have a gaping hole in the tire or the tire is actually the bead of the tire is broken from the rim, it's separated from the rim, it's not going to work. You need a tremendous amount of air pressure to get that bead resealed, and that's why they make the tire machines that we have at our, our business, and many businesses have those. Uh, you won't reseal it with one of those little tire pressure inflators. They are nice to have, and there are times they work. If you have a slow leak, mm-hmm. like with a nail in there or something? Yes. A slow leak like that, it'll work. Um, never remove a nail or a screw until you get to a facility to repair it. Uh, it's like taking a pencil out of a heart. You're going to bleed to death, and it's not going to make it. So just leave it in there. Okay. Trust me, I've seen too many people take it out. Hmm. Not the pencil out of a heart. It, not the pencil out of the heart, the, the screw, the, the nail out of the tread of the tire. So. so when somebody brings in a tire to you for repair, what do you do? Uh, we use the procedure of patching the tire. Uh, the reason being is there are no tire manufacturers out there that want you to actually plug a tire, which is essentially putting a, vi- a device in the hole that was penetrated by the nail or the screw and filling that hole. That's really? not the ideal situation because it it infracts upon the the steel cords of the tire and actually separates them ever so slightly. And no tire manufacturer wants you to do that to their tire. So really? the ideal situation is if possible, you can patch it. We have what also what we call speed-rated patches. Uh, we have some low-profile tires that actually need what they call a, a plug patch. So we'll actually put a patch on it, but there's a little, for lack of a better word, a little nipple that sticks out, and they want you to fill the, the hole that the large piece of metal or whatever went into the tire made. So Now you do this on the inside of the tire or the outside of the tire? We do it on the inside of the tire. That's the <laughs> ideal situation. It makes a tire like it was before. Obviously, it doesn't add tread, but it makes it as safe as it was before. Um, and it's a permanent repair. Um, we repair a lot of plugs that leak, if that tells you anything, um, from other places. So they're a quick, inexpensive fix, plugs are. Um, but in the end, ideally, you want to spend a little bit more money and to do it correctly, follow the manufacturer's guidelines. They know what they're talking about and have a have your facility put a patch in it. So with all due respect to facilities that put plugs into tires. Okay. Well, let's uh, change uh subjects a little bit here Mm -hmm. and talk about something else scheduled maintenance now there are a lot of people out there that don't trust the car companies Mm -hmm. gm ford Mm -hmm. for a lot of reasons which we could probably go on for a long time Mm -hmm. and so when they pick they buy a new car they look at the owner's manual maybe and uh many people don't usually not even if they do they see the schedule of maintenance which, especially the older the car gets, involves buying parts and all that kind of stuff. And they think, oh, these big companies, all they're trying to do is get me to buy their parts. Because mm-hmm. they always say, only buy GM parts or only buy mm-hmm. Honda parts or only buy Honda branded oil and so forth. So they're just trying to get me to buy this stuff. So I don't need to do this stuff. Mm-hmm. How do you react to that? So essentially the owner's manual and the specified manufacturer maintenance in there is, we call it the Bible of the vehicle. Um, in terms of what you're supposed to do to maintenance. So let's let's pull an example out. Um, Honda Odysseys used to, and I think they're getting away from this, put timing belts in there. 
So most of the factory recommendation is to change a timing belt at 105,000 miles, 105. So I've seen customers deviate from that. I've seen a timing belt break. And essentially what it is, it's, it's what they call an interference engine, where the piston inside the engine comes in very close contact to the valves above the engine, okay, inside the head. Once that timing belt breaks, the timing gets off and the piston makes contact with those valves. I've seen it happen. It's an expensive repair, much more expensive than the timing belt, and the customer regretted not doing the timing belt and making that repair and, and doing that repair in their vehicle. So that became kind of a tuition for us to go, you know what, we really have got to get on board with this. This was many, many years ago. We've really got to get on board with this scheduled maintenance because there's a reason they have that in there. You know, for example, coolant. Um, you know, some manufacturers, let's let's take Nissan, for example. Nissan wants their coolant changed every four years or 60,000 miles in most, most of their models. So over time or mileage, the coolant actually loses its anti-corrosion abilities. Then it starts taking out radiators and heater cores, which in the end, we're happy to have that business. But a coolant flush for 129 versus a heater core for $800 what am I responsible to do as a business person, as an automotive business person? I'm, I'm, I'm responsible to educate my customers so they know exactly what it takes to keep that car a long period of time. We're shooting for 250,000 miles plus. But at the same time, I'm also looking out for their wallet to go, okay, am I better? is it better for this customer to purchase a coolant flush every four years, 60,000 miles, or do I not say anything and they purchase a heater core every 100,000 miles or whatever it may, may be? So the onus falls upon me as a business operator to train my guys, hey, this is what we do. We lay all this, these items out. We tell them what it needs. Then we educate them, and then they can make the decision as to whether or not they want to do these factory maintenance items. You know, spark plugs, here's another classic example. You know, all gasoline engines still have spark plugs. If spark plugs arc out, they can take out ignition wires and ignition coils, basically doubling and tripling the expense of spark plugs. Now, again, we're happy to have that business, but is it necessary? No. If we educate our customers properly, it's not going to be necessary, and they're going to minimize their cost, the operating cost per mile in those vehicles, and they don't have to allocate a larger amount of money for those vehicles. I could go on and on. You know, transmission fluid, you change it for $149, $159 in most vehicles. Transmissions are $2,500. Pick your poison, whichever direction you want to take it. So um, I, I understand the distrust toward the manufacturers, but there is a reason behind these. They're not trying to get the car to fail in 100,000 miles and have you buy a new car. They're not trying to do that because essentially they want a quality product out there that lasts a long time, and then the next time they go buy a car, they're right on top of it, and they say, hey, that Nissan lasted me 250,000 miles. I think I'll do another one. That's really how the, the free market works. The big manufacturers are, as much as I understand where people are coming from, they're not out to get us. They're not out to you know, trick us and deceive us. The, where you have to be really diligent about the factory maintenance that you apply toward your vehicle is follow your owner's manual. And I'll say that again. Follow your owner's manual. We see it time and time and time again where people are deviated from their owner's manual from other facilities because there's a revenue aspect of it for the other facilities. Um, they're trying to hang on to revenue because car count is going down in most facilities. We all know that because of the extended oil change intervals. So careful not to deviate. We review 
quite often other people's history of where they've had their cars prior to coming to us. And I, we sit there with our eyes as, as big as plates going, why did they get these items sold to them? Why are, why are these other places doing it? Now, don't get me wrong. There are a lot of reputable shops around this area, but there are some that you have to just not deviate from the owner's manual and to say, hey, why am I doing this fuel injection cleaning on the vehicle? So anyway, just follow your owner's manual. That's the Bible of your vehicle. Now, does that mean that there's a real advantage to taking a car to one place long term? Um, so that you have a continuity of care and that place knows what they've done and so forth? Well, from a selfish <laughs> standpoint, I, I've seen quite a few customers that what we call shop bounce. And they end up spending more money because they can't keep all their records straight in terms of what they've done on their vehicle, what they haven't done. So they might do a you know, cool and flush at 60 and then come to our shop and we say, hey, have you ever done this? Well, I don't know. So we say, well, if you've never done it, you need to do it. Or vice versa, it happens the other way. So from a, a saving your money aspect, it's, it's ideal. If you're not a good record keeper, it's ideal to stay with one shop. But if you're a good record keeper, there's no reason why you can't pick between shops. There's none, no reason whatsoever. But I, I say from a standpoint, historically speaking, most people are not great record keepers on their vehicles. It doesn't mean I'm not picking on them, but um, they don't keep good records, so they don't know exactly what's been done. So they, they become redundant in doing services on vehicles, which essentially waste money. Do you guys keep records yourself yes. on the cars that you service? Yes. Um, I think most shops anymore keep computer records. Uh, that are pretty detail-oriented. I've seen some shops that are have computer records that it's very difficult to read the, the language that's in there, which is not really good for the consumer, the, the lay consumer, because they don't know what they're looking at. Um, I think it's important that shops keep computer records and they know exactly what services have been done on the vehicle and they can quickly go to it and, and review that history. So, so if I bring my car into you long-term, uh, you can pull up on your computer. You can see what was done at 50,000 miles. You can mm-hmm. see what was done at 75,000 miles or whatever. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And that, that's what makes it really nice when people do service their vehicles with us long term is, you know, we know exactly what it needs and what it doesn't need. And there's not a lot of thought process that goes, process that goes into it. And customers trust a good shop, and they know we're not going to deviate from it. Now, when a person goes to sell that car, mm-hmm. can you produce... Yeah, list? yeah, we actually have a, an option on our, our software system that says, do you want to print the history? And often people come to me and say, hey, I'm, I'm selling this car. Can I have the history? And we just click a button and here's all your history. And they go give it to the, the end consumer. And it really kind of solidifies that sale for them because that just essentially exhibits that this person takes care of their car. So they're getting a good, a better quality vehicle than the average person that has not one record to show for does that so, interfact, inter, interact with Carfax, or is that something else? Yeah, actually, Carfax came to us uh, two, three years ago. They actually tap into our database, so they can extract data, uh, so they can present that to people to subscribe to Carfax. So a lot of good shops are involved with Carfax. They, they shouldn't have any problem saying, yeah, go ahead and tap into our database, um, and they can tap into all of our customers and see what's been done. And so if somebody goes to buy a car, Carfax will tell them, what's been done. The only drawback to Carfax is um, the the shops that don't subscribe to Carfax, that's where it's difficult is you get some, you get some holes in people's records. So that's the only drawback. So that's where it comes back to either a consumer uh, uh, having good records or a, their shop maintaining good records for the, the vehicle. 
Well, one other quick question before we wrap up here. I was reading your book, and mm-hmm. you mentioned in the book that um, your grandfather started it, your father's still in it, you're taking over, and fourth generation is coming up. Is that correct? We we don't know. On the back of my book, I've got my my daughter, Katie, with me. Um, but she has kind of a, a, a dream, a vision to be in the nursing industry. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it's going to happen. She enjoys hanging around the shop with all the guys, and you know, everybody knows her. But And if she doesn't take it over, that's okay. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to force that upon her. Uh, I'll let her make her free will decision. I would like to have her work at the business, you know, when she becomes age, I think you learn a lot being in a family business. Um, there are things that Bradley didn't teach me and I, and I, by no means am I picking on Bradley, but when you're out in the workforce and you're learning the subtleties of consumers and the ins and the outs of everything, uh, it's, not teachable to, at a college or a university. So I would like her to go through it just to gain the experience. Are you so, going to bring her on to the program sometime? Possibly so. Yeah, possibly so. Actually, I, I brought her on another radio show, but she didn't She didn't really speak. She just observed. <laughs> She's a great, great kid. Yeah, great. All right. Well, thank you very much. It's been a great, uh, very quick half hour. Mm-hmm. And thank you very much for your thoughts, Brett. And we look forward to talking to you next week. I appreciate it, too. Have a good day, everybody. PeoriaLife.com.